Welcome back to the Talking Footy podcast. Now, each week across the footy season, we are talking with the biggest names in the game. I'm Brian Taylor, and this week, our guest is the one and only Matthew Richardson. Now, Richo played 282 games for the Tigers and remains a loyal Tiger to this day. He finished uh, his on-field career with some 800 goals, was named three-time All-Australian, still holds the record for the most goals kicked at the MCG, and of course is a best and fairest at the club as well. On this podcast, I take Richo back to the day in his third year when he tore his ACL and he thought his whole career was over. Yeah, the pain was pretty immediate, and I felt the pop and the noise, and yeah, I knew it was I knew it was going to be bad. Interesting to hear Richo's thoughts about to be a great player, whether you need to have won a premiership. Everywhere you look, there's premierships, and when they start talking about finals and premierships, you sort of just go to the back of the room and get a cup of coffee because you feel like you can't talk about it. Well, you can't because you haven't been there. And also the style that Richo brought to the game, whether it was the shoelace headband or the samurai-type hairdo. We were trying to sort of mimic these sort of rock stars, but we weren't rock stars, we were footballers, so... Yeah, we went through that phase with the long hair and all that sort of thing. He's an absolute superstar and he's with us now. Welcome to you, Richo. Good to be here, BT. I am just slightly nervous having known no. you for a number of years where you may take this interview. Just let let yourself go. <laughs> let it loose. Hey, let's go back to pre-93, pre-your debut with the Tigers, take you back to Devonport. When did you know that you were a good player? Oh, look, I reckon it was probably... I reckon when you get picked for your first sort of state underage team, and that was the under-16 schoolboys, uh, that would have been in 1990. I remember I got selected in the under-16 schoolboys. We went up to Brisbane to play in the carnival, and once you get into that environment and you're up there in Brisbane and you're playing games, you, you sort of look around the ground at Cooparoo. We were playing our first game, and you could see all the recruiting guys sitting in the cars up on the, the hill, you know, and you could park your cars in the ground and you can see them all sitting there with their clipboards looking very important. And that's when you go, gee, you know, the AFL people are here. So, you know, you're in the spotlight then. So pre that, just like months and maybe a year pre that, were you, were you conscious that there were going to be people looking at you? Did you already understand that? I did. I reckon I was a little bit different because Dad played at Richmond uh, in the 1960s, played in a premiership in 1967. And at the time... Uh, Neville Crow was president of Richmond, who was a good mate of Dad's and sort of stayed in touch. So Crowey would talk to Dad. So I knew that Richmond were keeping an eye on me. So I guess I was a little bit fortunate in that regard that I sort of had that motivation that, gee, if I'm playing good footy, I know Richmond are watching me. So it was a bit different for me, I reckon. So the junior, what about the junior football in Devonport? Yeah. Um, were you a standout at all junior levels or when did you really rise above the pack? I reckon in school footy, I wouldn't say I was a standout. I was probably, you know, one of the better players in your team. If you've got any ability in your school team, you're probably in the top two or three. But I reckon it was when I went down to the Devonport Footy Club and started playing sort of under-17s. Uh, that would have been in about 1989, I guess. I was probably 14, 15, playing in the under-17s. And I, I sort of shot up in height a little bit. My height went up pretty quickly in, in, a, in a number of months. And... I reckon that was when I started to think I was maybe good enough and a little bit better and maybe had a chance of going somewhere with footy. But before that, you know, I didn't... I wanted to be an AFL footballer, but that was sort of pie-in-the-sky stuff. But I reckon around that time, sort of 14, 15, I shot up. I started to sort of take games by the scruff of the neck a little bit more. You and start to believe then. And, and how did the process work? So you go to this carnival in Queensland... All of a sudden, there's recruiters everywhere. All of a sudden, there's there's a father-son situation going yeah. to happen here. Were there other clubs as well that were were, were interested? Yeah. Well, I remember the first letter I got from another club was actually from Fitzroy. I can't remember the name of the recruiter at the time, but they just sent a letter to myself just saying they were keeping an eye on me and you know to keep going with my football. It was basically a letter of encouragement more than anything, just to say that they had their eye on me. Um, now, nothing ever came of that. The only other club that paid any attention probably in the year of my draft, which was 1992, after the Teal Cup, uh, was Collingwood. Uh, they they made contact with Dad. Jared Sholley was the recruiting guy. Made contact with Dad and said they were interested and was basically trying to get me to not sign 
under the father and son rule. Back then it was pretty simple. You just signed up, father and son rule. Richmond used their last pick and you came over. So Collingwood were basically saying, don't sign up under the father and son rule and, you know, go into the draft and, and we'll pick you up in the draft. But I thought, gee, that's risky because you go into the draft, Collingwood, you know, there's no certainty they're going to... Yeah, they're yeah. not going to get you. That The number one pick that year was uh, the West Coast Eagles. Now, I'm not suggesting I was going to go number one, BT, but I, I'm not sure where Collingwood you were. You went four, didn't you? No, I went... No, I was Richmond's last pick in that draft. So if I hadn't have signed with Richmond under father and son... I would have gone into the, the lottery. Yeah, right. And you don't know where you're going to end, end up. As yeah. I'm saying, the Eagles had the number one pick. Who did they take? They took Drew Banfield that year. I'm not sure what pick Collingwood had, but they weren't in the top few. So I'm not, I didn't want to take that risk. I'm not saying I would have gone number one, but I didn't want to go into the draft. I wanted to come to Melbourne. I didn't want to go to Perth or Adelaide or Sydney uh, or Brisbane. So, um, so what was the turning point in negotiations? What... Well, when did you finally say, okay, that's it, I'm going to the Tigers? I don't think there ever really was, but I remember it was starting to play on my mind a little bit. You know, Colin Lee Matthews rang me at home on a Thursday night in uh, probably about July 1992. So the greatest footballer of all time. The greatest footballer, and I remember it clearly. I was sitting in the lounge room about 9.30 at night, and generally I didn't have a mobile. There were no mobiles back then. I didn't get phone calls at 9.30 at night, and I'm in watching telly. Mum comes into the lounge room. She goes, Lee Matthews is on the phone. <laughs> and I ob obviously thought, oh, this is a load of rubbish. Yeah. It's not Lee, the greatest player of all time, coach of Collingwood. Yeah. He would have been coaching you, BT. Yeah. And I got on the phone and Lee basically was saying, you know, come to Collingwood. We'd love to have you at Collingwood and don't don't sign up with Richmond. Can't go into the draft, blah, blah, blah. But I got off the phone and obviously very, you know, flattered that the greatest player of all time rings you. But I didn't, I never really considered it. And I was playing at Devonport at the time, and it, but it was affecting my mindset a little bit. I wasn't concentrating probably at training with Devonport during that week. And it was round 22 of the, in the AFL, I remember. And Peter Knights actually rang Richmond and said, can you, can you get this deal done? Can you get him to sign up? We've got finals coming up here at Devonport. Not Peter Knights was our coach. Yeah. The, and Knights, he said, can you get it done? Get him signed up so he can just forget about it and concentrate on playing with us in the finals. And I flew over to Melbourne. Uh, Richmond played Adelaide. It was round 22 on a Sunday Arvo. Me and Dad flew over. We watched Richmond get pumped by the Adelaide Crows for about 20 <laughs> goals. I think Tony Modric kicked 10. If it wasn't him, it was Scott Hodges, but it was one of them full forwards. And we went back to Punt Road and uh, Cameron Schwab was the uh, CEO of Richmond. And he put a contract down for me, four-year contract, and said, uh, you know, here we go, We'd, we'll sign you up. And Dad said, all right, we'll, we'll take that home and we'll have a look at it and have a think about it. And I said, nah, Dad, I'm signing it now. So I signed it right then and there and okay. um, that was it. Basically, Richmond then just used their last pick in the draft, but I actually moved to Melbourne before that even took place because I knew where I was going. So. How old were you when you came to so Melbourne? I was 17. So, um, yeah, it came to Melbourne. I probably had a three or four weeks training under my belt before the draft and uh, gave me a bit of a head start, I reckon. Mm. And... What did you know of the... Obviously, through your dad, you knew about the Richmond history, but yeah. the Richmond history was like no other. Yeah. You know, there was there was the Jack Dyers, there was the great teams of the 60s and 70s. There was an incredible um, passion associated with the history of Richmond. It was like yeah. no other club. What, yeah. what did you know about that? I knew a lot because, you know, dad played there for 10 years, uh, stayed in contact with the club. We used to come over on school holidays and go to the games and go down into the rooms. And I was a passionate Richmond supporter. Uh, Dad had a lot of uh, scrapbooks that his, his mum had kept for him. Mm -hmm. And I reckon he had, you know, 10 scrapbooks and they were chock-a-block full. Wow. And, you know, as a kid, there was no footage really. Dad had yeah. one game on tape, the 1967 Granny, which I watched over and over again. But I'd read these scrapbooks and it just gave me a great insight into the club. So I knew... I knew the 60s very well. I knew the 70s and 80s very well. The 80s because I lived through it as a, a supporter. Um, I didn't know as much about the Jack Dyer era. Had you met Jack? Did yeah. You, I, how, how many times? I only met him once. Really? In yeah. all that time? Yeah. Because he was alive for a considerable time after you yeah, arrived. he was. But he was probably in the latter stages of his life and probably wasn't in public eye that much. Tell us about that meeting if you remember. Yeah, I do. I remember distinctly. It was the reopening of the Jack Dyer stand at Richmond at Punt Road Oval. 
it was pretty much condemned, this stand. You couldn't go and sit in it. We still trained in the gym underneath, but you couldn't sit in it. But they renovated it up and redid all the seats and um, they had an opening on a, on a Sunday, I reckon it was, and uh, probably 12 of us players went down and, and Jack came down and when he walked in, he was he looked quite frail, you know. He was a bit hunched over, and people. Was he the big? No, nah, he wasn't. He wasn't as big as you were expecting. He was quite Captain Blood. Yeah, you like the. He was the big feared figure, you know. Yeah. So you expected him to walk in like his heyday, yeah. you know, the great Captain Blood. That he was a ruckman, but he would have been, you know, he would have only been just on over six foot and probably a bit hunched over and probably lost a lot of weight. And he was quite old. I'm not sure how old he would have been, but. He walked in and he didn't say much. He shook our hands and you sort of thought, oh, is Jack going to be able to get up and, and talk here? You know, he wasn't, he didn't seem sort of that healthy at the time. Well, as soon as you gave him the microphone, he was off and running. It was hilarious. You know, there were a couple of thousand people there to, to watch the reopening and Jack just held court and it was probably then that you realised, hey, this guy, you know, he was a legend and a great media performer and you could see why. He was off and running, very funny and we had a photo with him uh, probably the 10 or 12 players that were there and you can see in every player's face you know the thrill in their eyes it's a great photo actually and um, that was the only time I met him went to his funeral and, and listened to guys like KB do his eulogy and it would have been not long after that actually so not very often you get to to meet the status symbol of yeah. the club or the legend these yeah. you know Richmond had a lot of legends, but yeah. he was the legend of legends he was he? yeah he was well captain blood everyone yeah. in football knows him and I guess a lot of people were reintroduced to him when the footy show started because the the logo of the footy show that's right yeah. was that figure of captain blood mm. so people that didn't know him that was probably where they got reintroduced mm. to him but yeah it was a thrill a thrill to meet him and heard a lot of stories about him since so on debut for the tigers you were playing the saints i think that's right plugger kicks nine goals three yeah at the other end you're yeah. sitting at the other end watching what were you thinking oh so you're in a bit of richmond one yeah we didn't win many games that year, mind you. We got pumped the week before, I think, by about 80 points, and that was probably what gave me my chance. You know, they made changes at selection, John Northey. But, yeah, a bit surreal, a bit surreal because Tony Lockett was the man. Him and Gary Ablett, I guess, were the yeah. two and Dunstall. You know, there were three great forwards in that era, and they weren't coming to the end. They were still playing pretty good footy. So, yeah, you run out on the ground. It doesn't seem real. Uh my first opponent was Danny Frawley and he was, you know, the state fullback at the time. So I was a bit nervous about playing on him. And then you're watching Plugger down the other end. So, yeah, yeah you sort of don't believe it's real for a little while. But once the game starts, obviously you kick into gear and, and get moving. And we had a really good win that day. So it was good to uh, get a win in your first game and sing the song. So you, you basically played from day one. So when you debuted, it was... There was no reserves football for Matthew Richardson, was there? Oh, no, there was. I played. I think I played the first five games in the twos, five well, or six we games. We normally play three or four seasons. In the... <laughs> so you've played virtually none and you've gone yeah. straight in and yeah. really cemented your spot from basically game one. Yeah, I remember being... I always thought that I could play right away. I think playing senior footy in Tassie for 12 months before I came over held me in good stead. It was a was a pretty good comp back then in Tasmania. A lot of ex-AFL players were down there playing, you know, Reese Jones, Stevie Wright, Mark Browning, yep. Mark Yates. They were all sort of captain coaches down there. Peter Knights, as I said, was my coach and it was a pretty hard and tough comp. So as a young kid, 16, 17, playing in that comp, it sort of, it probably hardened you up a bit to play senior footy. So I wasn't worried about playing against men so I, I actually thought I could play straight away when I came over. I was actually disappointed in round one when I didn't get selected. I was probably, you know, <laughs> kidding myself, BT. But uh, yeah, I, I sort of, I sort of thought I was ready straight away, and I, I thought I had a contribution straight away. So, just going forward a little bit to your third year, torn yeah. ACL, yeah. Uh, sort of middle of the year. Um, did you know straight away? Uh, yeah, I did. Oh. It sort of was in disbelief. I went up for a mark near the boundary line at the SCG. And, and this changed the rules. Did. Tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, I did. Yeah, it did. I went up for a mark and you know as a forward, when you, I jumped in the air and was balanced to take the mark and I got a little nudge from behind from Andrew Dunkley. And when you're in the air, you, it's a horrible feeling when you get nudged because you've got no control. No control, yeah. And I was right near the fence. 
And I remember going through my mind when I was in the air, it sort of was like slow motion. I thought, geez, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit the fence here. So I thought, I'm gonna have to try and stop as soon as I land. So I stopped with a stiff leg to try and pull myself up from hitting the fence. And you get that hyperextension and then I sort of exploded and, and crashed into the fence. And yeah, the pain was pretty immediate and I felt the pop and the noise and yeah, I knew it was I knew it was gonna be bad. And the lack of distance between the boundary line and the fence was altered as a result. Yeah, they bought it in the next week, basically. I'm not sure how far, a metre or so. So and you're I'm... responsible for the SCG being so small now. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> I actually got legal like legal letters from people saying that look, mm. if my knee didn't come up, you know, if my career was basically cut short because of that injury, I probably had pretty good grounds to to take legal action for loss of earnings, future earnings, but I sort of didn't even think about it. You know, I was 20 years of age and I thought, no, I'll be right, I'll come back from this. You sort of think you're Superman a little bit at that age and I'd never been injured before, so. You are in great form too, weren't you? Well, the whole team was. We won the first, I think we won the first seven games and then we lost a game and then that was round nine in Sydney. We won that game, we went to eight and one. So at the end of that game, I remember flying home on the plane uh, with Stuart Wigney, who broke his ankle the same day. We were sitting up in business class, the first time I was ever in business class, PT. Took a knee injury to get into business class. Uh, I remember sitting there and uh, we were actually top of the ladder that night, flying home, eight and one. So it sort of made me even more disappointed because I knew, gee, we're actually on track here to have a pretty good year. Um, played I, finals, didn't you? Yeah, they, they played finals. Richmond did that year. Lost the first final to North Melbourne. Wayne Carey turned it on. Uh, beat Essendon the next week. Uh, went into a, a prelim out at Waverley and played Geelong and they smashed us and they went on to play in the grand final and got beaten by Carlton. But yeah, it was, uh, it was disappointing. So you miss all of that year uh, yeah. after round nine. Most of the pre-season, you're in rehab. But in 96, when you come back, I just want to read some figures to you because yeah. this is this is amazing. You played all 22 games of 96. You kicked 91 goals, 49. You're an All-Australian in your first year back. You average four goals a game. Normally people take a year mm. to, to get over. You were straight back into it. Yeah, I don't know. I guess you've got to give a lot of credit to the, the uh, fitness staff at the time. I remember the physios. Uh, the doc was Chris Bradshaw. Uh, Paul Coburn was the physio and... Yeah, I just reckon they put a good program in place. Tony Free actually did his knee a few weeks before me and he was our captain at the time. And, you know, I had someone in rehab that really pushed me along. He was a really hard sort of taskmaster freezer. He, he didn't put up with any rubbish. And I remember in rehab, he was driving me along and he was a few weeks in front of me the whole time. So I sort of had someone to aim for in rehab. Did so you play any practice games in 96? I did. I did. I played a couple. I remember my first game back was a, a pre-season cup game. I can't remember what it was called then. Um, but it was out at Waverley. Played Collingwood, actually. And my first opponent after a knee reco was Ned Kelly. Now, you know Ned, <laughs> uh, BT. And, the blanket. Oh, fair The incredible. pincher. Yeah, the pincher. Well, that's he did. He was pinching he? me that night. I'm like, come off it. Like, so you come back from a knee reco. You just want to run out there and sort of just feel your way around the yeah. game. I've got Ned pinching me and <laughs> I, I didn't get a kick, actually. I, I, I don't reckon I touched it more than three or four times. And I didn't touch it in the next practice match either. I think we played Fitzroy in a, a practice match out at Skinner Reserve or somewhere like that. Didn't touch cool. it. So I went into round one. You know, I felt fit and ready, but I hadn't had a touch. Yeah. Hadn't had a kick. So I, I felt like, geez, I'm, I'm underdone here. And then it just clicked round one against Essendon. I think I kicked six goals and I sort of didn't look back from there. Did you, uh, on reflection, was that your best year? I mean, uh, the goals say it is, but. Goals wise, yes, but not influence okay. on games. No. Right. I reckon 99, I reckon I had more influence on games. That was probably my best year. Right. right. Um, 2004, um, you're in the leadership group in, in the years leading up to 2004. You depart with the leadership group. Why? <laughs> Oh, gee. Um, no, why? Well... Like, this is something that I you would have been sitting in yeah. Devonport going, I want to be a leader at yeah. Richmond. Yeah, I did. And I reckon uh, I reckon the year before, I'm, I could be wrong, but I got dropped. I'm not sure what year it was. I think it was the year before that, 2003. And I actually was captain for a game against Carlton. I think uh, our captain it was Wayne, well, it was Nider, I think, Matty Knights. Um, 
was injured or whatever, and I was made captain. It was actually my 150th game. We were playing Carlton on a Friday night at the MCG. So I, I really wanted to play well and lead by example. And I wasn't playing well. <laughs> <laughs> well, Richard, quite extraordinary. A fit of peak on the lead. Not Brian. Standing with his hands on his hips. He looked like Achilles Jones out of him. The big men fly. What's this? And he gave up on it all. He gave up. He just became petulant. He actually cursed before it the got kick there. before it got to him. <laughs> Amazing. I've never seen that. <laughs> I wasn't playing well and things just, everything was going wrong. You know, everything that could go wrong was yeah. going wrong. And uh, I had a bit of a blow up. I handballed one Joe the Goose style over to Dave Roden in the goal square. And it was an easy goal, you know. On the goal line, Dave just had to grab it and put it through. And he fumbled it and it went across the line for a point and I lost it. Steam coming out and I had a crack at Dave, who was only a young player, and it didn't look good. It wouldn't have looked good on TV. You know, it would have looked like an absolute peanut. And I remember driving home from the game on uh, the Friday night, disappointed, knew I'd let the team down. We lost, you know, the big captain's performance didn't happen. And my phone rang in the car on the way home and it was Danny Frawley, our coach. And I thought, no, oh, this ain't good. I knew straight away. <laughs> and I answered, I said, Spud, he goes, mate, that, what were you doing? That was a disgrace tonight. You know, you've let the team down. Was there a bit of pre-chat to soften you up or not? <laughs> or was it as hard as that? It was, he was flat. He was, yeah. had, he was pretty disappointed. And he basically told me then and there that I wouldn't be playing the next week, that I'd yeah. be dropped. And, yeah. um, I got home and obviously I actually put, remember the delayed broadcast, you know, you could yeah. get home and catch the yeah. last bit of the game yeah. on, on channel seven or nine or whatever it was on at the time. And I put it on and it was right at the end of the game. And then they sort of were showing some replays and they showed the replay of that incident. And, you know, they were all getting into me, the commentators. And I thought, oh, probably fair enough. I reckon. So Spud was the coach at that time. Yeah. yeah. So you, you were a bit, um, Occasionally demonstrative in your, uh, in your um, coming from you, Bristle. Yes, in your passion yeah. to want to succeed, um, yeah. arms in the air, um, you know, head down, that sort of thing. Did you un did you realise you were doing that or not? Uh, I did, I did. Um, but I actually reckon I played my best footy when I was sort of just yeah. on edge, yep. you know. Yeah. But it's a fine line, isn't it? Yeah. I reckon sometimes it would take you to the good you know the good side of things and the other time it would look bad and and look bad for your teammates and I reckon sometimes it can be misunderstood like I reckon sometimes I was just annoyed at myself more yeah. than anything you know annoyed that I wasn't performing how I wanted and people would always think it was directed at your teammates which at times it was obviously but at times it was actually just frustration at myself which mm -hmm. boiled over you do get um, pissed off with your teammates though. every player yeah, does yeah don't they yeah, they do. Yeah, you know, but, uh, because they haven't done it the team way or yeah. whatever it is. But I just think you, you can't really show it now. Mm. You know, you can't show it. And I reckon that was a bit of a turning point, though, that night when I got dropped. I went back to Coburg the next week and, you know, I just enjoyed having a game of footy without the, the whole real stress and pressure of playing AFL. And I reckon from that moment on, particularly in my last five years, I think I really controlled that emotion and sort of, harnessed it in a positive way not a negative way but it took me to about 28 or 29 to realize it was that because i was brought along as your uh, body language coach there <laughs> terry wallace one of your coaches said i need you to work on richo's body language he did. i did i remember when he suggested you brian i thought is this the man for the job <laughs> is this the right bloke to bring in yeah. but no nah, well, it was under plough that I, I played pretty much my most consistent really? footy i don't think i played as many really standout games, but I was just consistent and my body language was better as well. So out of all of those coaches you had, yeah. um, who was the who was the one that that you best not I'm not saying your favourite or anything, but yeah. the, the one that got the best out of you? Well it's 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 interesting because I reckon you always think back to your first coach and I love John Northy. It was pretty simple footy back then. You know that was his was, first year yeah, too. I first think. year and it was simple footy. So he was very much just kick it long and get numbers to the contest. And there weren't as many tactics in football. And I just enjoyed the way he coached, his motivational style of coaching, a bit of fire and brimstone before the game. I actually enjoyed that. I liked that, getting yeah. fired up before he ran out. But then I played, you know, that year, on the first year under Wolsey, 
which we talked about when I kicked, the, you know, the goals. You know, I really enjoyed that year as well. I enjoyed playing under Wolsey. He was pretty hard, Wolsey. You know, he'd give it to you. He'd give you a good spray when it was needed. But I actually enjoyed that. Some players don't. You know, they go under their shell. But if a coach had a crack at me, I sort of didn't mind that. I sort of reacted well to it. So, you know, Wolsey, Wolsey was hard, but I thought he was fair. And I reckon if you're fair, players know if you're being fair. Um, but I reckon I played my best season uh, under Jeff Geeshan. So, and then I... What, what year was that? Uh, 1999. Oh. Uh, but then we played finals under Danny and I enjoyed his coaching as well. So I, I reckon they I all took had something. something. Yeah, I reckon yeah. they did, yeah. 2008, you played on a wing. It's been a lot talked about. But yeah. you had a great year as well. You All-Australian. You only get selected as an All-Australian if you're really consistent in a year. Yeah. Um, third in the Brownlow medal. Yeah. Uh, did you think it was over prior going to the wing? Yeah, I did. did yeah, you? I remember it. I um, I walked into the club. I reckon it was after a Friday night game in round three of that year. May have been Collingwood, not a hundred percent, but I didn't play well. I'd had a pretty average start to the year playing in the forward line. I walked into the club on a Monday and Plough said, uh, "You know, Richo, I need to have a chat to you." And I thought, "Oh, gee, this this ain't good." I said, "Yeah, no worries." I walked into his office and he said, "I need a favour." out of you. I said, yeah, what's that? He said, look, we've got Jack Rewalt here at the club now. Jack had played a couple of games the year before, but, you know, it was his second year. Uh, the first three games, he was playing in the forward line with me, and Terry said, look, we're not, we're not looking for Jack. We're kicking it to you all the time. Jack's actually finding good positions, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. We reckon he's going to be a good player. And I said, I do too. I said, well, what do you want? You want me to take him for some goal kicking? And Plough said, that's the last thing we want you to do, take him for goal kicking. <laughs> so I said, well, what do you want me to do? He said, look, we want you to just go up and play on the wing. He said, what do you think about that? I said, I don't think about playing on the wing, uh, Plough. <laughs> I said, maybe go back to the goal square. Jack can play up the ground. And You're six foot six, yeah, 100 kilos, yeah, 105 kilos. Yeah. So I thought, geez, I thought, what am I going to do here? And I said, what are my options? Because I, I really didn't think that was a viable option, playing on the wing. As you said, 105 kilos. How was I going to run around up there? Uh, he said, look, well, if you don't actually embrace it, you're going to play for Coburg. Like, really? It was, that, it was that clear. So I thought, well, I've got no option. I said, well, yeah, I'll play on the wing then. So I remember driving home that day out of the club. I thought, I'm in trouble there. I will be done. I thought my career was done. But I rang a mate, Wayne Campbell. Um, who was at the Bulldogs at the time, who I'd played with. I said, I reckon Plough's lost his marbles here. He wants me to go and play on the wing. And he said, no, I reckon it's a good idea. He yeah. said, you've got good aerobic ability. He said, you know, I think you'll find that you'll like it up there, a bit more freedom, you know, run around a bit. And I thought, oh, well, yeah, maybe it is a good idea. So we played in Perth that week against the Dockers. Uh, David Mundy, I remember lining up on David Mundy on the wing. He was only young at the time. <laughs> He's come back to haunt Richmond recently. <laughs> Um, and I basically reckon we shook hands and we, I never saw him for the rest of the day. You thought, how good is this? I thought, how good's this? Yeah. How long's this been going on? Because you know, as a Ford yeah. BT, you've always got someone arm across. Yeah. Every time you get the ball, you're expecting contact or yep. be tackled. And not. you know, you'd get the ball out on the wing and you'd look around, you'd have a bit of time to think about it and a bit of space. So yeah, it actually turned out pretty good and ended up being an okay year for myself. And I think Jack benefited as well. He developed pretty quickly. What do you think your your strength was? I mean, it's obvious to say that your marking was was pretty good. Um, but what did you think your strength was? Well, initially, as a junior, I thought it was my marking. That was my greatest strength. I think I had pretty long arms. Like, you know, if you do the arm test, how long your arms are. Mine are probably longer than average. So I think the longer arms sort of kept me in contest. And I could take marks that maybe you shouldn't with the longer reach. Um, so I always thought that was my strength, but also for my size, I, I had good aerobic ability and that was probably probably the number one thing that got me around the ground. What was the most, it was 21 marks in a game you took at one yeah, particular got, stage? Yeah, one. one 1996 against Fitzroy, Yeah, actually. that was Fitzroy's last game in Melbourne. Yeah. Which was... That's right, you kicked 7-5, 21 yeah. marks. Yeah, it was Fitzroy's last game in Melbourne. They were struggling, let's be honest, and we dominated that game, so there were plenty of opportunities inside 50, but... Um, yeah, that was my greatest strength, getting around the ground. Tape is clear. He has a look down towards Richardson, who comes steaming out and marks 55 out. Yeah, lovely kick. First goal to Richardson. 
Danger time again because Richardson has it speared onto his chest. He's got players in the square if he wants them. He elects to have a shot at goal for himself and pops it through. Goes forward. Here's Richardson. He's had 13 marks. It's unbelievable. Is this just my imagination? Or did you have a bit of a love-hate relationship with the supporters? Or was it all love? Nah, uh, I, I reckon... You know, they loved you when you were playing well, but when yeah. you weren't playing well, they didn't. Is that... Well, I, I think that's right. But I think as... As I got towards the end of my career, I think it... They are on board. I think they are on board. Mm. But I think initially, you know, I, I probably frustrated them. Oh, I know I did, you know. Probably a bit up and down and missing easy goals and that sort of thing. That that frustrates supporters. You only got to look at Richmond on the weekend. You know, you're, you're 25 points up against GWS and you got three, two or three players miss easy goals. And as a supporter now, I was frustrated watching it. And I can now sort of realise why they were annoyed because, you know, they put their heart and soul into barracking for a team and the player misses a shot 15 metres out that can ice a game. Yep. You can see why they can be annoyed at you at times. So I sort of feel for them now. I can I can see, see what they were thinking. Monday night, it's the best in the business with everything you need to know about footy. Join Luke Darcy, Wayne Carey, Tim Watson and Sam McClure for Talking Footy. The match review panel, please, please get it right. It is not difficult. Well, I reckon we've found a new Superman in the competition, Duck, and he's only played two games. Rodney Eade has to desperately find a way to build a relationship with his players. Umpires are human and they want to go... I want to be Mr. Popular. <laughs> Monday nights at 7.30 on 7 Mates. We're talking footy. Uh, one thing that intrigues me is you, you, you're the sort of uh, you, the male model. And, um, <laughs> Here we go. You went through, I was waiting for this run. You went through particular um, stages. Uh, there was the shoelace headband. There was the... Um, <laughs> Uh, samurai sort of hairdo. The samurai, yeah. It was the, you know, the, the thing hanging out the back. The ponytail, it's called, Brian. Yeah, yeah you, you went through all of these different phases. Was that, uh, were you conscious of your, of your look? <laughs> I'll be honest, it was, it was, uh, it was deliberate. Yeah. I don't know if you, you won't know this, Brian, because you're not really up with uh, music at all, are you? No. No. No, no idea. Not. We've known you for a while, I know that. But back in the early 90s, it, there was this grunge era that came out, you know, Nirvana, yeah. Pearl Jam, bands like this, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains. You've heard of a few of those. I've heard of a few of them, <laughs> yeah. Pearl Jam. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, like, we, so we were, like, 19, 20, 21, 22, and, you know, I lived with a group of guys uh, that uh, all were interested in that sort of music as well. Brad Pierce that played at Carlton. Yeah. Uh, ben Harrison, my best mate from Tassie. Uh, so we'd on weekends when we had time off, we'd love to go and watch these type of bands. And all of the guys in the bands had long hair, so we had to have long <laughs> hair. So we we were trying to sort of mimic these sort of rock stars, but we weren't rock stars; we were footballers. So yeah, we went through that phase with the long hair and all that sort of thing. Lockett and Ablett Senior yeah. Yeah. didn't win premierships. Mm. You didn't win a premiership. Didn't get near one. Lockett and Ablett are regarded as as all-time greats. Yeah. For me, you're you're an all-time great as well, but... Nowhere near those sort of guys. So they're next no, level, those no, guys. No, but PT. what I'm getting at is I don't reckon people give you the kudos simply on the back of not having won a premiership, but I'm, I think I'm in your, in your way of thinking that I don't think you have to have won a premiership to be a great player. No, I don't. I don't think so. I mean... You're a vic you know, sometimes timing is everything in footy. And Ablett and Lockett yeah, didn't win premierships. Yeah, exactly, they were great players. Exactly. But, and you realise now, I, th I think if you haven't played in, in premierships, Ablett and Lockett, I think they're a bit different. You know, they're, they were absolute top echelon legends of the game. You know, there's only a handful of those guys. Um, but I think if you play in premierships, I think, don't take this the wrong I think you can be elevated a little bit higher in your individual stuff yeah. because you played in premierships. And I think I've noticed that more now working in the media. You seem to, yeah. if you haven't played in premierships, you, you sort of have to check out of some conversations because you, you sit around in the media boxes now and you look around, everyone's played in premierships. You know, you've got Lee Matthews, who's a, one of the greatest players of all time, obviously, yeah. Wayne Carey, you know, Cameron Ling. But everywhere you look, there's premierships. And when they start talking about finals and premierships, you sort of just go to the back of the room and get a cup of coffee because you feel like you can't talk about it. Well, you can't because you haven't been there. So, 
yeah, it, it sort of it sort of does get you frustrated. See, this is what I, pe- I think people like about you is is your modesty. You don't you don't you actually don't understand that in thirty years time at Richmond that you're you're going to be regarded as as what Francis Burke and Kevin Bartlett and those great players of the seventies were now. You, that, that's going to be yeah. you in thirty or forty years time. Well, I don't think so because you've built that history. Yeah, but I think. They'll always have the premierships. Yeah. And unfortunately, if you haven't played in premierships, you probably aren't regarded as highly. Mm. And that's just the way it is, BT. I mean, you, you know that. Yeah. Uh, one club, um, one career at Richmond. Yeah. Did you ever, was there a stage during your career that you were tempted to leave? I think it was around the time you talked about with leaving the leadership group, around 2003, going into 2004. I remember I went up to Byron Bay on a holiday with a few uh, of the Richmond boys. I think Nick Daffy was there and Wayne Campbell. And I remember on that trip seriously thinking, you know, is this, is this for me? We'd, we'd had two ordinary years, you know, in 2002 and 2003. We'd played in the prelim in 2001 and things didn't turn out the next few years. Mm-hmm. And they were my worst two years individually. I just didn't play well. I was injured. I kept doing my hamstring. I was frustrated. And I just thought maybe this is the time, you know, maybe I should move. I remember um, Peter Schwab rang me up in Byron Bay when I was up there. He was coach of Hawthorne. And he sort of sounded me out about a potential move. And on that trip, I really was thinking, no, I think it is time. But by the end of the holiday, I'd spoken to Wayne and and Nick Daffy and they sort of said, just forget about the leadership stuff. Um, Just worry about, you know, playing and forget about it and... I think I sort of relaxed a little bit in my mindset and I actually had an okay year the next year in 2004. So that was one time it bobbed up. And I reckon in 1999, leading into that year, uh, or it might've been at the end of that year, Fremantle had a fair crack and offered me a a pretty good contract, but I was never really interested in in leaving to go to Perth. And I think it was around the same time as Schwabby rang me with Hawthorne, I actually went out to Dennis Pagan's house. He was coaching Carlton and had a coffee with Dennis out at his house. He rang me directly and I thought, oh, I've got to give him some respect and yeah. go and talk to him because I respected Dennis highly. But I had a chat, but I never seriously considered it. So, yeah, I never, I never got close, to be honest. The only contract I saw from another club was Freo. They offered a, a, a deal back in the late 90s, but I never talked contracts with Hawthorne or Carlton. 17 years. Yeah. Might, you know, I think the AFL average career is about three. Yeah. 17's a good go, isn't it? And in, in each of those years, you polled a Brownlow vote. So you were significant in all of them. It was a remarkably consistent career over 17 years. Yeah, I guess uh, the, the thing that mucked me up a little bit was injury at injuries. times. List your injuries. What did yeah, you have? I, had, I didn't have any real injuries my first two years. Uh, my, my third year, I did my knee. 1996, I did my knee. Uh, 95, sorry. Came back in 96, played every game. So I got over that well. Then I remember, so I had a good year. I remember um, a pre-season game. The next year in Adelaide, I broke my arm pretty badly and had to have a plate put in. So that mucked up the start of that year. So every time I felt like I was getting on a roll with my form, I had an injury. So that sort of mucked up the start of 97. Um, then in end of 1999, I had another knee injury and had knee surgery on my other knee. It wasn't major, but it, it sort of affected my pre-season a little bit. But I started 2000 off well uh, in the first five games. So I felt like 99 was my best year. I felt I started 2000 well, and then I did uh, my foot, the Liz Frank injury, yeah. which was what finished up Dane Swan's career. Yeah. Um, and that's a pretty major injury. I did that in round five and missed the rest of that year. Um, and then 2001 came back and, you know, we made a prelim final and thought I played a pretty solid year. And then 2002 and three, as I said, I reckon I did six or seven, eight hamstrings in two years, which was pretty annoying. Had a couple of broken cheekbones, broke that arm again that I broke in 97. Ripped um, the hamstring off the bone. Yeah, I had the hamstring. That was what finished my career, ripped the hamstring off the bone. Couple of cheekbone injuries, you know, broken thumbs and stuff like that. Uh, surgeries. I think I had 18 surgeries in 17 years. I added up. So any effects from any of those now? Uh, not really. No, I feel pretty good, really, considering. Did you like it when they gave you the the pre med or when they, when they knocked you out? Did you actually get used to that in the end? 
That's the only good thing about having surgery, BT. Mm. Yeah. Um, the media. Yeah. Um, why? Well, obviously you need to support yeah. your lifestyle. Well, I only really started thinking about it seriously when I did my hamstring that we just spoke about. After 2008, I played three or four games in 2009 and ripped the hammy off the bone, had the surgery, and I thought, gee, I'm, I'm done here. Was, You'd had some little practices in that time, yeah, hadn't you? Yeah, I'd done the footy show yeah. over the years. Um, I'd done little bits and pieces, but I hadn't really thought about doing it long term. But then when I did that hammy, I thought, I'm done here. I don't, I don't think I'm going to play next year. I just thought all of this rehab, yeah. you know, I'll be 35. Do I really want to come back from another surgery and try and play again next year? Um, so I thought I've got to do something. So my manager at the time was Ricky Nixon. And I said, Ricky, you've got to try and get me some work while I'm injured. I've got to do some media work and see if I can do it. So I did a bit with Channel 10, did a few games, special comments, did a few radio games. I did a show on Channel 10 on a Monday night, one week at a time, that Stephen Quartermain and, and Wolsey, Robert Walls, uh, were mm -hmm. sort of co-hosts. I did that every second or third week, and I got to the end of the year and retired. And I felt like I sort of did an okay job, and I quite enjoyed it. So I guess I just, when I retired, I thought, gee, I hope the phone rings. You don't know, do you? So yeah. lucky it did. Channel 7 rang and 3RW rang, and... I got jobs with both of them and it sort of just went on from there, but I was pretty lucky, I think. Yeah. Well, what, what didn't you know about the media that you now know and you go, geez, I didn't know that? <sighs> Is there something that was hidden or something you didn't realise you had to do or, you know? Probably the one thing, the one thing that I'm still not probably good at with it is is the political side of it, the political side of football. And, you know, I thought when I first started, right, I'm employed to, to do special comments and I just thought you could just talk about the footy. But, you know, you know as you know, there's a lot of time that you've got to fill, a lot of air time and a lot of space on radio. You know, we do three hours pre-games on radio before the game even starts. So there's a lot of time you've got to talk. Yeah. And I just I still find it now difficult to get involved in the, the political stuff and when you've got to be really you know, critical of players and, and that type of thing. That's probably the thing that the I struggle thing. with the most. And, and did that, like straight out of your footy, that's really difficult. Really hard, really hard. As time goes on, you, you don't have an association no. with the players that are playing, so mm -hmm. perhaps it can become a little easier, yeah. but it's never easy, is it? Well, what I, f I think, BT, is if, you, if you're being critical of a player, as long as it... I think players know what they've if they've done right if they're not playing well and if you I think if you're being honest and you're not sort of sensationalising or trying to get a headline if you're just being honest about their form and, and how they're playing I know as a player that deep down if a, a media person said something about my form pretty much I knew it was right and I'd right. accept it so as time's gone on I've realised that you bump into players that you might have had a critical word about on the weekend and I don't think they take it to heart. Unless you're being unfair and you're saying something that's not right, they might get annoyed. But I think if you're being honest and you're being yourself, I think players accept that. The death of your father came after your career. Yeah. Um, what, what sort of an influence was he on your career? Yeah. He wasn't, he wasn't the sort of dad who'd come to the footy and tell you how to play. He wouldn't sit on the sidelines and yell out. He was sort of, he'd sit in the car. He was always there. But he'd be sitting in the car. He wouldn't come over to the huddle and grab you aside and say you were doing this or that. He was never really critical, and he never he never gave too much sort of feedback. And I think that was good. But he was always there, and that was the main thing. You know, if you're playing footy, you know, as a kid, you look around to see if your your folks are there watching, and they were pretty much always there. So a good support in that regard. Um, but let me work it out myself, which I appreciate now. But uh, he was a motivation for me just because he'd played, you know, and I wanted to follow in his footsteps. 282 games, 800 goals, three All-Australians, 13-time leading goal kicker, team of the century. Uh, it's a bit Richmond. of a love in this, isn't it? Tassie team of the century, Hall of Fame at Richmond, AFL Hall of Fame, Richmond life member, AFL life member. You know, of all of those trinkets that you, you, you've you been awarded along the way, which is the one, what... what which is the one that you really you treasure and you go, I'm, I'm glad that I was able to achieve that? Yeah, well, probably the one thing that eluded me up until my last few best years... Best and fairest was too, the, sorry. Was, the, ..was that, the best and fairest. 
You know, if you play for 17 years and you walk in, I guess the club best and fairest is something that you rate highly because it's it's judged by your coaches and your peers, basically. Mm-hmm. And they that means that they've appreciated the season you've had and they're the only ones that really know what was expected week in, week out. The umpires don't know. The the media, they don't really know what the expectations of the coaches are. So if you win a BNF, it means that you've done what the club wanted you to do for the year. And that eluded me till 2007. So I think when I won that, that was something I really appreciated. But clearly when you look back, if you haven't got a premiership medal, you finish your career, you sort of, you go, gee. And then as I say, you hear all these guys in the media talking about all their premierships. (laughs) To be honest, I'm getting sick of hearing about all their premierships. Yeah, it does. It does. Now look, you're you're about to become a father. You're 42 years of age. (laughs) I've waited, Brito. And um, how how are you going to handle that? I'm not sure. Do you know whether it's a boy and a girl, boy or a girl? Uh, we do, but uh, we're not going to let the cat out of yep. the bag. But, yeah, it's going to be interesting, isn't it? Because you get to 42, you've lived a pretty selfish sort of lifestyle, I guess, haven't you? You've, well, you have. You're yeah. at home, you're selfish. It's yeah. all about you and, it is. and, and your partner. And yeah. you don't. And all of a sudden you've got to set up yeah. for someone else. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we've, you know, I've done what I've wanted, gone on holidays. You know, never had to be, you know, around at the end of the year or, you know, done whatever I wanted gone out for dinner when I wanted. If I want to do this, I do it. And it was basically all about me, I guess. So <laughs> it's, it's not going to be anymore, but I've, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's it's something I've really wanted to do now and I, I'm really looking forward to it. Not many people have kids without marrying. Yeah. Is, there, is there pressure on now to marry? <laughs> yes, there is, uh, BT. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, you won't try and force that before the birth because that's imminent, <laughs> but, uh, you know, like... Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, the future, Brian. Oh, that's great. Um, who's the best player at Richmond that you've played with? Best player? Gee. Probably um, the best form I ever saw out of a player was Nathan Brown before he broke his yeah. leg. Those nine rounds before he broke his leg. Um, gee, what year was it? 2008 or seven. He was in unbelievable form. Um, that was probably the most brilliant form I've seen. I guess the most consistent players I played with were like Wayne Campbell and, and Brendan Gale. Who's the best uh, player? Sorry, yeah, Matthew Knights, not Brendan Gale. He was a good player. but He was a hack. <laughs> Just joking. <laughs> no, he wasn't. Who's the best player you played against? Gee, I think Kerry. You know, I, I rate the forwards, obviously, because I am one, and I think you understand how hard it is in that position. And centre-half forward, through the 90s and, and early 2000s, you know, I think he dominated more games than, than most. Um, and I think you judge a player on how they can win a game. And Carey could win a game in five minutes. Yeah. I remember a game out at Waverley one night, and I reckon it was pretty even, and Carey took a couple of big contested marks, sort of on or outside 50, and went back and drilled these two big goals, and it sort of won the game for him in five minutes. And I remember Glenn Archer, sort of, who I was playing on, just sort of, I remember he sort of hearing mumbling, something like, oh, that, you know, win the game for a skipper, and he did. And I thought his teammates were sort of expecting it. So, look, he was probably the best. Best advice you've been given? Is there a piece of advice that stands out in your mind where you go, gee, I, yeah, I enjoyed that or I stuck to that or... Yeah, I think as a forward, I I just think the advice I got given early in my career, and this is by junior coaches and, and particularly, and Peter Knights, was just get to as many contests as you can as a forward. And I think if you do that, you know, I used to try and get to, you know, as many contests as I could each quarter. And if I got to 10, 12 genuine marking contests, you know, maybe I'd take two or three marks there. And if you do that for the whole game, all of a sudden you've had 12 marks and, you know, you've probably had a pretty good game as a forward. So I still think playing as a, a forward, sort of half forward, work rate is everything. And if you get to the contest, you're going to get the footy and then the rest happens from there. Biggest non-truth that was said in the media about you? Was uh, there one? Uh, I Often I, players have, you know, they go, gee, I reckon I was unfairly dealt with there. I just think the notion maybe at times that I was, it was selfish and all about yeah. me. I felt that I, I wanted to play for the team and, and be a team player, but sometimes I don't think people thought that. Last time you cried, when did you last cry? Oh, definitely when you you know you lose your father. That was probably the last time yeah. for me. I remember that, and you're never going to forget that moment. It was, you know, something that you gets you right, hits you right between the eyes, and it was yeah very emotional. 
20 years from now, where do you think you'll be? Jeez. So what do you be? You'll be 62. 62. Yeah, I'm not sure I'll still be commentating games of footy. Really? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think you've got to, unless you're doing what you do, which is call the games, which is different. Mm. I think if you're a caller and you call the games, you've obviously got a, a very big lifespan in the game. You look at Cometti and, yep. and McAvaney, how many years did they do it? I mean, Bruce is still going and Dennis is a legend. But I think if you're not calling games and you're just, you know, your special comments. I think you've maybe got a use-by date because there's always going to be someone else retiring, more yep. contemporary and probably more up-to-date with the game. You know, once you get out of it, yeah. unless you're right at the coalface, you probably don't really know what's going on 100%. If you could change one thing about the game or the industry, uh, what would be the Matthew Richardson one change that you One change? Make? Yeah. Well, that look, might be a rule, it might be a... Thing the media do, or it might, could be anything. Look, I just think, I just think it's a pretty good product, pretty good game, and we're seeing that this year. It's a, a fantastic year, and you know, I've probably been a critic of changing rules regularly, but there, you know, a few rules that have been brought in have probably helped the game this year. So, has the game changed too much though? From what, bit. from when you started? I, I, the one thing that I'd like to see is Fords just hold back a little bit more and play as forwards. I feel now that, you know, some of the big forwards that can't cover the ground quite as well, they're sort of dying out of the game. So do you think bit. by decreasing the interchange further, it's capped at 90 now, if that was reduced further, I'd it like would force that? I'd like to see how it would work. Now, even, you know, they've brought it back from 120, you know, what is it now, 120 now? Or maybe, you know, bring it back to Bring it back to 80 and no, see. it's 90 now, sorry. It's 90, sorry. It's 90 now. So well, it was, was 120, yeah. 90. Bring it back even further. Yeah. Bring it back and just see, because I think if players get more fatigued, they're not going to be able to get up and back as much, and then maybe those big forwards will come back into the game a bit. Is there anything I've missed? Uh, I've covered a fair bit, BT. <laughs> <laughs> something in there. There's always something there. But uh, anyway, I think we've uh, we've been through the career. It was a, it's an incredible career, 17 years, and to achieve what you have achieved in the game, Richo, is absolutely outstanding. Thanks, you BT. will go down as one of the greats without any doubt. Thanks, BT. Appreciate it. We're talking footy.